All right. Hey, Bridgeway, how's it going? <laughs> well, hey, it's great to see you. Welcome to Bridgeway, particularly if you're new. want to welcome you. hope you feel right at home with us tonight. If we haven't met, my name is Brian Kiley. I'm the singles pastor here at Bridgeway, and just really glad that you're here and excited to dig into God's Word with you tonight. If you want to go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 7, that's where we're going to get started. We'll have the verses on the screens as well. We'll be looking at Luke chapter 6 also, would invite you to open up your scriptures, and if you're in either of our sanctuaries, would invite you to go ahead and grab the paper you received when you walked in the door. Want to take a minute to say hello to those of you watching online and those of you over in Onsite Rockland. We're really glad that you are with us as well. So, as we get rolling tonight, we are in, as I mentioned, Matthew chapter 7, continuing our Being Jesus series, studying the life of Jesus, and we've reached the end of the Sermon on the Mount tonight. And before we get into the text, just some questions I want to talk us through. And the first is this, is when you think about the decisions that matter most in your life, the decision, or the decisions that you've made that mattered most in your life, what, what comes to mind? What, what comes to to mind. Perhaps you think about vocation or what you do for a living. I, I spent uh, most of my youth and adolescence wanting to be a sports writer. Kind of a strange thing for a kid to want to be, but that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be that for a really long time until I got to college a few years in and realized, oh my gosh, I don't want to do this. And that was very strange. And, and, and my life would, would undoubtedly be very different today had I continued on that career path. Or perhaps we think about location, where we choose to live. I was recently on vacation in Montana, and there is some rural country up there. And, and I couldn't help but think, man, my life would be really different if this was the environment I lived in. Or in my 20s, I served a six-year sentence in Los Angeles. And I wasn't incarcerated. That's just what I call living there. And and I, don't worry, I escaped. And, and as I look back on that, I just think about, man, my life would be really different if I was still stuck, I mean, if I still lived there, right? Or maybe we think about education. My time at UCLA, go Bruins, and my time at Fuller Seminary was just so incredibly transformative for me intellectually and relationally and, and spiritually. And, and surely I would be a different person today if not for the experiences that I've had. Or maybe you think about, uh, about decisions about marriage or whether to marry. And if we do marry, who we marry. I mean, I think about my wife and how she has influenced my life in, in so many positive ways, just countless positive ways my wife has influenced my life. And I, I think about all the ways that I've influenced her life. And how some of them are positive, you know, that we would both be very different people had, had we chosen to marry someone else or, or if I had chosen to remain single. And, and alongside decisions about marriage or decisions about children. I mean, I, I whistle VeggieTales songs at work and I can recite Dr. Seuss in my sleep and neither of those things would be true, I can assure you, if I did not have young children. Right? Like, that's just the world that I live in right now. Or, or if you were to ask me, hey, Brian, have you read anything interesting lately? I would tell you about an up, uplifting tale involving an asparagus who, against all odds, learns his colors. I get choked up just thinking about it. And again, that, that was not my choice, right? Like, I'm a pretty fragile reader, but if I'm choosing the book, I can handle a little more than that. That's just, you know, a way my life has been impacted by the fact that I have young children. And on all of those decisions have influenced my life in profound ways, and my guess would be, as you thought through your own life and what are the decisions that have impacted me the most, you probably thought about some, if not all, of those decisions. And they are incredibly important, and they're decisions that we must make carefully and prayerfully. I want to be clear about that. But here's a question. Are they the most important decisions 
we make? Many in our society would say yes. And, I mean, frankly, I understand why. But it's interesting, as I read the scriptures, and I've been studying this book for the 17 years that I've been a Christian, there is relatively little in here about just about all of those decisions. And as I've prayed about these decisions and sought God's will for those decisions, I'll be honest, there have been many times where I've still been left unsure about what to do. I mean, the fact of the matter is, if you're trying to decide whether to remain living in this area or move somewhere else, uh, there's just, I can't show you a verse that's going to make that clear to you. Right? I mean, does God speak sometimes and give direction? Absolutely. I mean, I think of the example of Jonah in the Bible where, where God speaks to Jonah and says, Jonah, go to Nineveh. And in, in Hebrew, that literally means, Jonah, go to Nineveh. Right? Like, you don't need a lot of interpretation there. And certainly sometimes God speaks in that way. But I'll be honest, as I've sought God's will in that area of my life, God's direction has not been as clear. Or, or similarly, there are tons of biblical principles you and I can take with us to work. But if you're looking for the verse that says, thou shalt take the job at the accounting firm in Roseville and thou shalt not take the job downtown, you're not going to find it. right? Or, or the scriptures talk about the qualities we're to look for in a spouse, namely that they share our faith, that they're followers of Christ, and that they're people of high character. But as many young men who are just agonizing over the marriage decision can attest, there is no verse in here that says, thou shalt marry Sally, as much as we might want there to be one. It's so interesting, the Bible says so little about so many of these decisions. And again, am I trying to suggest that God doesn't care about those decisions? Absolutely not. He cares deeply about those decisions. But isn't it interesting that we tend to think that, say that, hey, these are the biggest decisions I'm ever going to have to make. And God doesn't say that much in his word about them. There is comparatively little. And we know from Scripture that God cares about the tiniest details in your life and mine. But I want to suggest something to you. I want to raise a question. Is it possible that we're wrong about what decisions will impact our lives the most? Is it possible that there are decisions we will make that will influence our lives even more than career, even more than what town we choose to live in, and even more than who we marry, whether we marry, whether we have children, and things of that nature? Jesus is going to show us in our passages tonight that in fact there are. And if we think of our lives as, as houses or as buildings, all of the decisions that I just referenced, those are the floor plans. Those are the flooring. Those are the walls. That's the color of the paint. That's the color of the carpet. They're significant and they matter, but they're not the foundation. And what we're going to see, and what I want us to see tonight, is the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you, and that is this. A life of eternal significance requires the proper foundation. A life of eternal significance requires the proper foundation. And when we look to the scriptures to see which decisions are, are truly the decisions that matter most, the scriptures could not be more clear. God shows us that the most important foundational decisions that you and I will make are decisions about our love for God, decisions about our holiness, and decisions about 
our character. Those are the decisions that matter most. And those three areas, there's tremendous overlap. Those are the ones that are going to influence our lives and shape our lives more than any other decision will make. And I would suggest to you, based on what, what the scriptures teach us, that the specific job you take and the specific place you live matters far less to God than the character you and I take to those locations. Uh, or, or I can, or, or for example, I, just as I said, I can't tell you from God's word, hey, this is exactly what you should do vocationally, or this is exactly who you should marry. But I can show you from God's word, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, if we're going to talk about, hey, what is God's will for your life, the scriptures clearly say God's will for our life is that we would be holy. And that God has called us to holiness, that we would live in covenant relationship with our Heavenly Father. And and from that relationship, we would then go out and live as ambassadors for Him, expanding His kingdom in the world. And it is the strength of our commitment to those things, the strength of our commitment to our love for God and our holiness and our character that are going to impact our lives the most and indeed determine the strength of the foundation in our lives. So with that, we'll start Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. And here's what Jesus says. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Here's what Jesus is saying. This is profoundly relevant for for us in our culture today. He's saying, you're going to go out into the world and you will hear many people talk of many supposed paths to God, that there are all sorts of different ways to find God. And what you and I must be able to do is we must be able to discern what is true from what is not. We must realize that those paths are not of equal value, and they are most certainly not leading to the same destination. We cannot simply say, well, we just want to find the path that works for us. Uh, Jesus says, no, 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 there are only two paths. There's a narrow path and a wide path. And this is an incredibly offensive statement on some level, but Jesus is helping us to see that we must learn to discern between what is true and what is false. And culturally, let's just be honest, we are very uncomfortable with this kind of thinking. There are many in our culture who would say, no, 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 it's not a good idea to judge between religions and to say this religion is true or this religion is false. Uh, that's, that's mean and that's arrogant and that's very judgmental. Or, or maybe, how many times have you heard this? Uh, it, it does not matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. That, that's what matters most. So, so many in our culture have said that. Or perhaps, as I just mentioned, maybe you've heard it said that, you know, all religions are basically the same and they all lead to God. And I freely admit, on the surface, that is a very appealing idea. Uh, You know, hey, that's just very, let's all figure out what we want to believe and hold hands and kumbaya and we are the world and all get along and boy, isn't that nice. But the problem with that perspective is the Bible and every other major religion in the history of the world. But we'll start with the Bible. Jesus crashes this little kumbaya party and says, wide is the way that leads to destruction, and for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. Jesus is telling us there are not many roads that lead to God. There are, in fact, two roads, one leading to life and one leading to destruction. There are many ways to God that are presented to us, but those ways are not of equal value. And the truth is, everyone, every single person, 
is headed towards one of two very different spiritual destinations. Everyone, Christian, Jew, Muslim, Buddhist, agnostic, atheist, everyone, everybody has spiritual beliefs and spiritual commitments that determine which road we are on. And that road we are on is taking us somewhere. And so we're headed in one direction or another based on our spiritual beliefs and our spiritual commitment. And this sort of language, by the way, of kind of one way or another way is common throughout the Bible. It's not just Jesus who said it. Like, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moses says to the people of Israel, uh, he says, I set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. Jesus says there's a narrow road and a wide road. Moses says you can choose life or you can choose death. There's blessing and there's cursing. Psalm, the Psalms talk about this a lot, particularly Psalm 1, which says that the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Again, there's the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. Everyone is on a road. And the road they're on is based on the faith commitments they've made. Even, even an atheist or agnostic, maybe you'd come to me and say, I don't, you know, you, preacher man, you, Christian, you're making commitments based on faith, but I don't do that. I don't make it, I, make, I make my commitments based only on evidence. Well, I mean, I love you, but that's just not true. You, you have beliefs about the afterlife and about spiritual things that you, don't, you can't back that up with science. You, you're making faith commitments as well. Let's just call it what it is. We all are making faith commitments. And those faith commitments put us on a road, and those roads lead to very two, two very different destinations. And if that weren't enough, Jesus says there's no neutrality either. You're either on one road or another. And I just think, how many in our culture would say, that, I don't like that, that just sounds very mean, that's, that's just terribly intolerant. It's intolerant to say that there's one religion that's true and others are false. But let's just, let's examine that idea for a minute. Because here's what Jesus does in the scriptures, we need to be very clear about this, is that he tells us, not only is there only one way, he has told us what that way is. John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Jesus comes right out and says it. There are not many paths that lead to God. There is one path that leads to God, and nice to meet you, I'm him. Okay? He makes that very clear. And I just think... For, for someone that might say, well, gosh, that sure sounds intolerant. Jesus is God in human flesh who came to the earth, died on a cross in our place for our sin, accepts us just as we are, says all you need to do is follow me. I don't care what you've done. I love you and want you to be a part of my family. Who, the, who are we to stand in judgment over him? I mean, I don't like to be all mean when I'm critiquing other people. Idea, but that's just nuts. Who are we to stand in judgment over Jesus? But again, there are those who would say that, that, that this is intolerant. But, but again, is it really? I mean, fair question. D- does Christianity preach intolerance, as many throughout history and, and many in our culture have claimed? I would submit to you tonight, absolutely not. Because when we look at the teachings of Jesus... I mean, look at what the teachings of Jesus have to say about how we are to treat people that are different than us, or how, how you are to treat people that are different than you. I mean, Jesus goes far beyond tolerance. 
I mean, he goes far beyond tolerance. And let's just be honest. I think this is funny. Our society is so obsessed with tolerance. But is that really what we want? To be tolerated? Like, if you come to me and say, Brian, I've thought about this a lot. Just want you to know. I tolerate you. <laughs> Thank you? Like, what, what are we supposed to do with that? We don't want to be tolerated. We, we, that's not what we want. Or, or even, you know, we see these, these coexist bumper stickers all around, all around town. Maybe you've seen them on, on cars. And as, I, mean, I mean, there are certainly worse things than coexisting, but Brian, I'm willing to coexist with you. Can't we, can't we do better than that? And the truth is, Jesus calls us far beyond tolerance, far beyond coexistence. He calls us to love. He calls us, he, when it comes to how we treat those who disagree with us, those who would, would persecute us, those, those who, who, who would seek our harm, even the absolute worst of the worst of the worst people, those who say things we disagree with on Facebook or social media, Jesus says to love them. We're to love them. Or look at the way that he, I mean, look at even the way he lived his life. He calls us to love until it hurts and then to keep on loving. Look at the way he treated the prostitutes and the tax collectors and members of the Roman army and all of the other people that the religious establishment would have hated. What did he do? He loved them. We're we're called not simply to tolerance or coexistence. We're called to radical Love and, and listen. Has, has, it's a question so ridiculous it's hardly even worth, worth asking. Has every Christian in the history of the world gotten this right? No, of course not. All of us, myself most definitely included, have screwed this up at some point. And there are plenty of examples throughout history and in our world today of people who claim the name of Jesus, who have been intolerant, who have been just downright wicked, and that is a tragedy. But if we look at what Jesus has actually said. <laughs> Rather than looking at how you and I have managed to screw it up, he guides us not simply to tolerance, but to radical, self-sacrificing, sin-forgiving love. But, but loving those you disagree with, tolerating them relationally, we can all be friends. Tolerating them socially, we can, we can live together in, in, in a society together. Tolerating them legally, saying, you know, I may not agree with, what, with your cause, but I'm going to stand up for your rights just as I would stand up for my own. We are called to all of those things, but that is very different than theological tolerance or, or saying that all religious perspectives are of equal value. Because we can't simply say, well, all roads lead to God, and you just need to find what works for you. Because on the surface, it sounds very humble. And on the surface, it sounds very, quote-unquote, tolerant. But it's not. It's the opposite of those things. It's incredibly arrogant, and here's why. There is not a religion in the history of the world that is taught that all religions are true. That there is not a religion in the history of the world that is taught that all religions are equally true. There's not a leader in a major religion who has ever taught all religions are true. So if you come to me and you say, all roads lead to God, and it's judgmental to say that your religious perspective is right and others are wrong, if you come to me and say that, here's what you're actually saying. You're saying all religious perspectives are wrong and mine is right. My view of religious truth is superior to yours. You're doing exactly the same thing you're telling me not to do. That's not humble. It's arrogant. It's not tolerant. It's incredibly intolerant. It's not not rational. It's incredibly irrational. And it's worse than that. It's dangerous. It's dangerous to suggest that, that all religions are equally true because in saying that, you don't realize how intolerant you're being. 
Because you're saying every, every major religion is wrong and I'm right. It's, just, it's dishonest. Because here, here's the reality. I, I, as a follower of Jesus, along with, I'm sure most of us here tonight, I believe that, that God became a man in the, in the person of Jesus Christ and that Jesus really did live in history and that he, he walked the earth and he taught and he performed miracles and at the end of his life, he was put to death. And when he died on a cross, he was dying in our place for our sins so that the punishment I rightly deserve because of my sin was put on Jesus on the cross and is no longer on me. And that three days later, Jesus rose from death so that we could know for sure that Satan's sin and death are defeated and that salvation is, is, only get, is only available by faith in Jesus Christ. We don't earn it, we simply receive it by faith. Amen? So here's the deal. If you're a Muslim, or a Buddhist, or a Hindu, or you're Jewish, or Pastafarian, or whatever, oh, I'll love you. We can be friends. We can play on sports teams together. Our kids can play together. You're welcome in my home. I'm interested in your life. I'd love to know how I can serve you. Man, our families can get together. It'd be great. We can be friends. I'll love you. I don't care, regardless of what your spiritual beliefs are. But when it comes to talking about our spiritual beliefs, we can have a loving and respectful conversation, but I will tell you that our belief systems are incompatible Frankly, you'll probably say the same thing back to me. And I will lovingly try to show you why I believe mine is correct and yours isn't. That doesn't make me judgmental. That just makes me honest. Right? And we know this is true in in every area of our life, every other area of our lives. If you come to me and say, Brian, what color is the sky? And I say, it's whatever color you want it to be. Just choose what works for you. It's very judgmental to suggest it's a particular color. That's not open mind. That's delusional. Right? I mean, come on. You cannot simply say it does not matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. That's not humble. It's arrogant. It's not tolerant. It's intolerant. Jesus says it doesn't work. A very basic education in world religions tells us it doesn't work. It doesn't make any sense. And, and Jesus could not be any more clear on the issue. There, there are not many roads leading to God. There are two roads. One that leads to life and one that leads to destruction. Jesus extends a loving hand to us and invites us to follow him on the narrow road. And we can take him at his offer, or we can ignore him, we can ignore his call, and choose the wide road. Jesus says, the wide road is easy, but its end is destruction. Don't do it. It's a trap. Don't go that way. And perhaps, perhaps you're bothered by this idea of, of destruction. I get that. But perhaps you might say, well, if God is so loving, my, why, why is it that those who reject him must, must face destruction? That sure doesn't seem very loving. But, but here's the truth. And it's a truth we see continuously throughout Scripture. For those who repeatedly and continually reject God, they will be given exactly what they have asked for, and that is separation from God, eternity without God. And what's fascinating to me is that this word destruction, I learned this this week, in Greek that word could literally be translated needless squandering. So the idea here is is not of some gratuitous punishment, 
The, the picture is this. When we reject Jesus and we choose the wide road, we are needlessly squandering our lives, chasing after a false idea of freedom and fulfillment. The, the world tells us fulfillment can be found in so many different things, and it's a lie. Or the world tells us that freedom can be found in so many different things, and it's a lie. Or the world tells us that there are so many different things we can find our identity in that will ultimately make us complete, and that's a lie. Let me just give you some examples. The, the man or woman who has made their job their identity and works ridiculous hours and neglects their family, neglects their friends, neglects their hobbies, neglects their health, all in the pursuit of workplace success. Is that person free? I mean, I'm all for working hard, but not, not at that cost. Not, I'm not, 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 not for making work your identity. Or what about the individual who starts viewing pornography thinking, no one will ever know, it's just my little thing, I can always you know, delete histories and whatever else. Only to have that turn into a full-blown addiction. Are they free? That's my choice, really, is it? No, no, they're not free. Or the person who looks to their spouse for fulfillment and meaning, meaning instead of Jesus, are they free? Or the person who lives vicariously through their kids and finds their identity in the performance of their children, are they free? Do, hear what I'm saying. I, I love my family. I love you guys. I love my family more. I am all for prioritizing the family, but not like that. And I know that the quickest way to destroy a relationship with anybody is to look to them for your fulfillment instead of Jesus. Is a person who does that, are they free? The person who always has to be the smartest, who always has to win the argument, who always has to be right, who doesn't know how to say I'm sorry, are they free? No. No. They're not. The person who finds their identity in any of the fleeting things of the world, are they free? No. Are they ever fully satisfied? No. Are they constantly longing for more, believing that satisfaction is just around the next corner? Yes. And it's a trap. Wide road thinking tells us to pursue these other things as ultimate but they will only and always disappoint us. If we reject the invitation of Jesus Christ to find our identity in him, in, in him, excuse me, if we seek to find our identity in anything else other than Jesus, our end is needless squandering. Our end is separation from God. It is eternal appetites that will never be fully satisfied because we are only made to be satisfied in Christ and Christ alone. C.S. Lewis says, God can't give us peace and happiness outside of himself because there is no such thing that there's an easy, wide road of continual longing without satisfaction. And that is a picture of hell. The destruction that those who reject God face, we need to be very clear about this, it is a destruction of their own choosing. The God who made himself nothing and died on a cross in our place for our sin says, says, I love you, come follow me. I know the way is hard and the road is narrow, but it's worth it. Come follow me. And those who would say no, again, will face a destruction of their own choosing. The gate is wide, Jesus said, that leads to destruction. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So, that raises the question, why is the way hard? Why is the way narrow? 
Well, we need to remember that this passage is coming at the very end of the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. And just consider (laughs) some of what Jesus has called us to in this sermon. He's called us to be the light of the world. He's called us to not only reject violence, but to root out the anger in our heart that leads to violence. He's called us to not only reject adultery, but to also root out the lust in our heart that causes us to degrade others by our thoughts. In in a world in a world of the <laughs> lost my place uh, in, in a world of so much conflict, violence, and division, he, he calls us not only to love our friends but to love our enemies he 's called us to live with openness with one another where we don 't harbor bitterness but instead we seek reconciliation and forgiveness he 's called us to prefer to suffer rather than inflict harm on another, to turn the other cheek, to value faithfulness over effectiveness, to live with a heart that seeks god 's glory and not our own to lay up treasures in heaven, to replace our anxiety with a heart that seeks God's kingdom, to pray big prayers, to lean hard on God's faithfulness, and to do to others as we would have them do to us, regardless of how they treat us. Does anyone here hear that list and say, all right, piece of cake, what else you got? (laughs) No, of course not. I sure don't. I mean, I can't do that on my own strength. There's no way I could do that on my own strength. It's it's supposed to be impossible on our own strength. But when we answer the call to follow Jesus, he gives us his strength. He fills us with his spirit so that we might in time grow to be those sorts of people. Understand me that when Christ calls a person, he calls them to nothing less than dying to themselves. But hear me when I say this tonight, church, that it is in dying to ourselves that we find real life. Will, a call to, will following Jesus be difficult? Certainly. It's not all candy canes and gummy bears. It's just not. Will, will it require effort? Absolutely. But listen, come on, look at your life. Virtually everything you have that is of any value to you requires effort. Virtually any, anything you have of any value is gained through hard work. Your most valued relationships are work. Your marriage is work. Your family life is work. Your job, there's a reason why they call it work, right? It's work. And, I mean, that doesn't mean there isn't joy in those things. Certainly, I would, I would hope and pray for you that there's joy for you in those things, just like there is for me. But my point is, it requires effort, as does anything worthwhile, I mean, Bill Gates did not just wake up from a nap one day and think, you know, I should give computers a try and then have like a multi-billion dollar company the next day, right? He didn't, he didn't do that. That's not how it works. Or the Beatles didn't just like bump into each other at a bus stop and be like, I can sing. You play the drums, play the bass, okay, and just start cranking out hit records, right? I mean, they played gig after gig, month after month, year after year, honing their craft before anybody had ever heard of who they were or... Uh, as a good UCLA graduate, I'm currently reading a new biography about a man by the name of John Wooden. He was the coach, basketball coach at UCLA, greatest coach in the history of college basketball. He won 10 national championships during his career. But what's interesting, what people often forget to mention, is between his high school coaching and his college coaching, he coached for 29 years before championship number one. Greatness came only after years of tireless effort. Similarly, excellence in the school of Christ-likeness requires what author and Bible scholar D.A. Carson calls grace-driven effort. 
It starts with the grace of God who accepts us and forgives our sin and gives us a new heart. It starts with the grace of God who says, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you, say it if you know it, rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's this grace that we see at the cross where we can see God's radical and unconditional love for us. And it's from this place of acceptance, from this place of knowing that God is with us, that he accepts us just as we are, we rest in his grace and then radically pursue him. One of my personal heroes is a man by the name of Dallas Willard, and he he puts it this way. He says, the gospel is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude, but effort is an action. Listen, we don't earn anything by our quote-unquote good behavior. Even by our, our holiness, we don't earn a thing. Everything we need is given to us entirely by Jesus Christ, by faith in him. But there's effort required if we're going to walk the hard road with Jesus. There's effort required if we're going to walk the road of holiness and surrender and humility. Real growth in godliness is impossible without effort on our part. Just as Bill Gates didn't just become a computer genius overnight, or or John Wooden didn't just sort of drift into becoming the world's greatest basketball coach, you and I will not drift into greater Christ-likeness. It requires some intentionality. I, I I want to read to you a quote from D.A. Carson, who I referenced a minute ago. It's a lengthy quote, but it is. It's good stuff. So I want to read it to you. Just listen to what he says. He says, People do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift towards compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves that we have been liberated. Well, it's a bit of a kick in the face, isn't it? But, but here's how we can summarize it in light of our text tonight. We drift towards the wide road. Our natural proclivity is going to be to drift towards the wide road. But we have to fight to stay on the narrow road. And it's a fight worth fighting. The, the road of following Jesus is a hard road, but it is worth it. Amen? Let's keep going. After talking about the two roads, Jesus is going to use another metaphor in the next passage we're going to look at, and it's a combination of Matthew chapter 7 and Luke chapter 6. Here's what Jesus says. It'll be up on the screen on either side of me. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? It's a fair question, isn't it? Because here's a problem that we have culturally as evangelicals in the Western world, and frankly, it's a problem I see in my own heart, my own life, if I'm honest. We live lives of disobedience, and we try to make up for it by knowing all the right words. We live lives of disobedience, but try to make up for it 
by knowing the right words. I mean, it, it, you know, is the Bible the word of God? Oh yeah, absolutely. The Bible's the Bible's the word of God. Uh, do you believe it? Oh yeah, I believe every word of it. You know, should we post it in the courthouse and the school and wherever else? Oh yeah, yeah, it needs to be everywhere. Society is gonna be destroyed without it. Whatever. Do you read it? Well, I'm busy. I mean, listen. Don't hear a guilt trip in this, please. This is a hundred percent guilt-free zone. I don't do there. Christianity is not about guilt, but we need to be honest with ourselves and see if there isn't some inconsistency here. Because here is what I know to be true, and this is going to sting a little bit. It stung a little bit when I first heard about this. There has been study after study after study that shows that evangelical Christians, generally speaking, think very highly of the Bible, but very few of us actually read it. How can we say... How can we say that we believe that the Bible is the word of God and that God speaks to us through the scriptures and not read it. I mean, there's some, we're playing some games with ourselves there. There's some intellectual dishonesty there. Or, or if I can take this, take this a step further, here's what can happen. is We can read it, but here's what tends to happen. And this is kind of the idea that Jesus is getting at in this verse. Uh, I'll give you an example. Suppose that I'm at home and, and my wife leaves to go run some errands and she says, while I'm out, please load the dishwasher. And I say, okay. And she comes back after doing her thing and there's still a big pile of dishes in the, dish, in the, in the sink. And she comes to me and I'm, you know, there, big smile on my face. And she says, why are there still dishes in the dishwasher or dishes in the sink? And I say, hey, I remember what you said. I even memorized it. You said, please load the dishwasher while I'm gone. I even memorized it in Greek. You want to hear that? She said, okay, well, you heard it. Why didn't you do the dishes then? Well, here's what I did. I had some friends over. This is great. You'll be so happy. I had some friends over, and we talked about, man, what would it look like for me to load the dishwasher? It was great. We had this great conversation. It was awesome, right? That's not going to go well for me, right? I mean, that's insane. But come on. I see this in myself. Don't we do the same thing with Jesus? We hear what he said. And we consider what he said. And listen, I'm not, don't hear me, I'm not against small groups. I'm in a small group. I hope you are too. Love my small group. Not against Bible memorization. I hope you memorize scriptures. It's an important spiritual discipline, something I do as well. But we need to understand, those are the means. They're not the end. And if we make them the end, we are misusing them. The end is obedience. The end is a transformed heart that leads to obedience. And what Jesus is trying to tell us is, listen, my words are not for your consideration, they're for your transformation. I'm not looking for people that nod their heads in intellectual agreement. I'm looking for those who, who live lives of active obedience that come from a transformed heart. These other things are the means. The end is a life of joyful Obedience. Why do you call me Lord and then not do what I've said? That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. Jesus goes on. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. A wise man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and could not shake it. It did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, 
He will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, on the ground without foundation. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house. And immediately it fell, and great was the fall of it. Just as Jesus has told us, there are two roads. There are also two foundations upon which we can build our life. And this metaphor, this picture would have made perfect sense to Jesus' listeners because in the area where he was preaching around the Sea of Galilee, in the summer months, what would happen is the, the ground would get very, very hard. The sand would get very, very hard. So an unwise or perhaps lazy builder would say, hey, this looks pretty good. I can go ahead and build a house on this. And then what would happen is then the weather would change, the rivers would rise, storms would come, and that house would be, you know, three little pigs, not good, right? A, a wise builder, on the other hand, knew that they had to do the hard work of digging through the sand in order to find bedrock, a secure foundation upon which a lasting house could be built. And it's interesting to me that Jesus doesn't say there's anything different about these two houses except for the foundation. They very well may have looked the same. They may have been built of the same quality materials, contained craftsmanship of similar quality. I mean, when the weather was good, they both kind of got the job done to the same degree. And the passage tells us they even faced the same storms. But which one will stand through those storms is determined by the foundation. And so it is with our lives. And the reason we don't take this as seriously as perhaps we should, being Western, Americans, suburban, wealthiest culture in the history of the world, is there's a problem that plagues too many of us, and it's this. We've bought into the illusion of control. We've bought into the illusion that, that as long as there's enough money in the bank, as long as there's enough peace in our home, as long as enough people say nice things about us, as long as we eat enough kale, as long as there's a backup camera on our cars, you know, all good things, we believe we're in control. We believe we can build our own little castles upon the foundation of our choosing and trust that those castles will get us through. And the reality is we're not in control. The notion that we are in control is a myth. I mean, every single one of us is hanging by a thread. The only difference is whether or not we realize it. And listen, that is not fear-mongering. That's reality. When the storm comes, the quality of our foundation is exposed. And the only foundation that can stand the storms of life is the foundation of knowing and obeying God's word. Any other foundation will devastate us. But too often we hear the words of Jesus and we check off some religious box and proceed building our lives on a different foundation. And that might work well for a time, but when the storms of life come, they can sweep away every foundation imaginable except for the foundation of the word of God, which Jesus says will never pass away. And we have to consider, what are we building our lives on? And will that foundation stand firm when the storms of life come? I mean, what will you do if you lose your job? What will you do if you lose your house? What will you do if you lose your health? Going through those that many of us have, that is incredibly difficult, regardless of the foundation you're building on. But if you've built on those things as your foundation, it's devastating. 
And as Jesus finishes the Sermon on the Mount, his words could not be any clearer. His teachings are meant to not simply be merely believed, they're meant to be lived. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, that all scripture is breathed out by God and it is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. For what purpose? So that the man or woman of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. Scripture, the teachings of Jesus, makes us competent to do good work in the world for God's glory. But here's the dirty little secret. Competence that is not put into practice is of similar value to incompetence. Right? Or or James, the brother of Jesus, tells us, be doers of the word, not just hearers only. A life built upon the rock is not a life of believing nice things about the Bible. It's a life of immersing ourselves in the scripture and doing what it says. It's about being equipped and then using that equipment. Football gear is meant to be worn while playing football, but if I get dressed up in the pads and everything and the uniform and the helmet and the pants and the cleats and all that, get all taped up and everything, and just go sit on the couch, that's ridiculous, right? Like, I just sort of look silly if I do that, but too many of us have settled for that when it comes to our relationship with God. We're equipped, but we don't do anything. We hear, but we don't act. And, 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 and listen, I know this is, a, <laughs> this is a hard word, a hard passage, and we need to be crystal clear that this is not about morality. Jesus does not say this is what the moral person does. He says this is what the wise person does. This isn't about you do these things and you're good, and if you don't do these things, you're bad. The truth is all of us are bad. The whole point of our faith is all of us are bad, and we become good through faith in Christ and Christ alone. Jesus is not talking about morality. He's talking about wisdom. Just as there's there's wisdom in building your house upon the rock, there's wisdom in hearing the teachings of Jesus and acting. Obedience to Jesus gives us wisdom for the challenges of today, And it gives us the peace of knowing that we have a foundation that will last through tomorrow. Even if the storms of life come, if, who am I kidding? Newsflash, if the storms of life life haven't come yet, they're on the way. Okay, you're welcome. Um, But it's true, right? And, And too many of us, we're content to not know the word of God at all. And even if we know the word of God, too many of us are content to know it and not act. And the power comes in the application Wisdom is applied knowledge. Foolishness is knowledge that does not make it into practice. We experience the power of God when we take the loving commands of God and go out into the world and live in obedience, not by simply acknowledging them, but by living obediently by them. And with our, when our lives are built on the foundation of obedience to God's word, the only foundation, by the way, that can hold us up, here's the promise. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house and what? Could not shake it. It did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. So I want to ask you, be honest with yourself, what are you building your life on? What What is not just what's important, what is the foundation of your life? And when Jesus had finished, excuse me, <laughs> finish up, Jesus verses 28 and 29 of Matthew chapter 7. And when Jesus finished these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. 
The scribes and religious teachers of the day typically quoted from other people to establish their authority. Jesus, who the scriptures say is the word of God, Jesus, who is the exact imprint of the nature of God, you can imagine he does not have to appeal to any higher authority because he is the highest authority. So, so he spoke and people were astonished by his teaching because he spoke with this authority. But the question is, we have to ask ourselves, have we given him the authority he rightly deserves in our own lives? Because the Bible tells us, Philippians chapter 2, a day is coming when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Then this will happen on heaven and on earth and under the earth. Whether we're in heaven with Jesus or we're in hell, separated from Jesus, a day is coming when everyone will, will acknowledge Jesus' authority. The question we have to answer is, are we giving Jesus the authority he rightly deserves today? Are we rejecting the wide road and joining Jesus on the narrow road? Are we hearing and doing? Because it's in that sort of a life that we have the foundation to build a life of eternal significance. Because listen, there, we started this talking about decisions. There, there are hundreds of decisions that you and I will make every day of our lives. And there's a handful of decisions that we'll face that will really significantly impact the trajectory of our lives. But in the, the passages we've looked at tonight, Jesus has shown us in no uncertain terms the decisions that matter most. He shows, he sh- has shown us that life is not found in looking the part. Life is found in living the part. Life is not found in hearing. It's found in hearing and doing. It's found in being transformed so that we can walk with Jesus on this hard road that has a firm foundation. So it's so critical for us that, that we answer these two questions. The two questions that will influence the trajectory of your life more than any other question you will ever answer. What road are you traveling on? And upon what foundation are you building your life? Let's pray. God, thank you for your word that is breathed out by you and useful for teaching, reproof, and for correcting and training in righteousness. God, thank you that it makes us competent for every good work. And God, I pray that we would be a community of grace-driven effort. God, that we might know your grace, that we might know your radical acceptance of us, that we might experience the wholeness that comes from knowing we are deeply loved and accepted by our Heavenly Father. And that God, from that place of acceptance, God, I pray we would grow weary with hearing and not doing. We would develop a distaste for hearing and not doing. God, we would be, we would be people that hear your word and that the desire of our heart is to obey, and that we do obey. And that, God, we're willing to put forth effort, not, in an, not trying to earn anything from you, but just trying to join you on this narrow road, to join you in this life that you have called us to. Thank you, God, for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the, for the incredible lengths you have gone to rescue us from the wide road. God, would you give us discernment to recognize when the wide road is calling and, and to join you only and always on the narrow road. Thank you for your love for us. May you be glorified by our lives as we leave this place and seek to live lives of obedience uh, obedience to you in a world that desperately needs your love. We pray these things in your beautiful name. Amen. Thanks so much. Have a wonderful weekend. We'll see you next time.